Loved it. How are we doing this morning, Community of Faith? I'm so glad that you're here on this summer Sunday. A nice and cool outside in Houston, right? We're uh, in a series called Christianity 101, where we're looking at what it really is all about. And last week, if you recall, we started John chapter 3. We're going through the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 3, we see Nicodemus come to Jesus at night. He's scared of what the other elites will think of him. So he comes at night, but he is a ruler of the Jews. He's a good man. He is a moral man. He is a man that's seeking and open and honest because he comes and he compliments Jesus. And remember, Jesus responds immediately to him in a way that just blows his whole world apart. He says, Nicodemus, it doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter um, any of those things, how hard you've worked, if your good outweighs your bad, if you've helped your fellow man, you must be born again. And Jesus coins this phrase, born again, first uh, you know, time that it's really come on the scene. It's been misused a lot, but we're studying last week and this week. So if you missed last week, I know you'll want to go back and grab it, but what does it mean to be born again. What does it mean to be born again? And what, what we talked about last week that unless you're born again, Jesus said, you won't see the kingdom of God. And we talked about what that looks like and what that means. I want to pick up on verse nine today. And so Nicodemus, he's had his whole world blown apart, trying to figure out what is he talking about? I thought I was a good person, thought I was doing good. I thought I'd done the right things. Verse nine of chapter three, Nicodemus responded and said to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, you're a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen. And you people do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Jesus talking about himself. Camille Paglia says in America today, there's a sense in which we've all become naval Gazers. We've been just so introspective, all about ourselves and looking to ourselves for everything, thinking our opinions are reality. I mean, I talk to people all the time that say, I think God is like this. I think God would do this. But what Jesus is saying here, you don't know God. No one living on this planet has been up to heaven to see God. But he says, I've come down from heaven to tell you who God is and what God is like. And then Jesus says what to our mindset seems like one of the weirdest things that I ever seen him say in all the Bible. But verse 14, he says this, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. Now, 
to us, modern day, if you haven't read the Old Testament, it's like, what is that about? Nicodemus, who was a scholar of the Old Testament and a teacher of the Old Testament, knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. He was going all the way back to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. It's when the the people of God, the people of Israel, they had come out of bondage in Egypt and they're crossing to get to the promised land. And it ends up that they keep on rebelling and sinning against God so much so that ends up they wander 40 years in the wilderness. But this is one of those times when they rebelled against God and they were complaining and moaning and rebelling. And Jesus uh, says that God allowed these fiery serpents, it says in Numbers, to come in among the camp. Now, they weren't serpents that were on fire, they, but their venom, when they bit you, it felt like fire. They're very poisonous. And so people were dying like crazy. There were snakes everywhere. Some of you, that'd be your worst nightmare. Snakes everywhere, you know? Not just snakes on a plane. I mean, snakes everywhere. And, and so what happens is the people came to Moses and they said, Moses, you've got to go to God for us. We're all, we're dying here. We're dying And so Moses comes before God and says, God, what do I do? And God says something really strange, I think. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to fashion a bronze serpent. And I want you to put it on a pole. And I want you to lift it up high in the middle of the camp where everyone can see it. It's so interesting to me. You know, you you, you see on all our hospitals and everything, you see the serpent on the pole, right? That's where this comes from. All right, you wondered... Why do hospitals have a serpent on a pole? I don't get it, but it comes from this. And God said, everyone who looks to this will be healed. Everyone who looks to this serpent on the pole will be healed. Now, all they had to do was look because they were in bad shape. I mean, they couldn't crawl to it and, you know, rub its head or, 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 or do anything. They, all they could do was look, but that was enough. If they looked, they were healed. And Jesus is saying in the very same way as Moses did that. And what we realize is that God was giving a sign, a signal of what was coming when Jesus came. And so the text basically, Jesus is beginning to say that we're starting to get an image of what it means to believe. Charles Spurgeon was the great Baptist preacher in London in in the 19th century, but When he was just a teenager, he was really trying to figure out Christianity. He was really seeking after God. And he had this church that he usually attended, but there came a huge snowstorm in London. I mean, such a massive snowstorm that basically it shut down the city, but he was still determined to get to church and he couldn't get to his church. So he went to this little tiny Methodist church that was right around the corner from his house. And when he got there, only three or four people had showed up. Even the pastor couldn't get there. So he said, just this regular guy said, well, I guess I'll preach today. And he got up and he said, Spurgeon said he was such a bad preacher that about all he could do was just give the text and kind of expound on it over and over. He said, but it was perfect for what I needed. I just didn't realize it at the time. And so he was using the text, Isaiah 45, 22, God saying, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And so the man began to explain the text a little bit. He said, 
You know, you don't even have to lift a finger to look. You don't have to have money in order to look. You don't have to be good or bad to look. And then he said, don't look to yourselves. There's no hope there. And then he he said, listen to Jesus. Jesus says, look to me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look to me. I've died. I'm buried. Look to me. I've risen. Look to me. And then the man looked out at the three or four that were there, and he saw young Charles Spurgeon, a teenager. And Spurgeon said, by this point, I just looked miserable because I'd been trying to figure this God thing out, and I just couldn't figure it out. And that old man up there speaking looked right at me, and he goes, young man, you look miserable, and you're going to be miserable in life and death if you don't obey my text. Spurgeon said it was like a light came on inside. He said, I'd been searching for what to do to make myself right with God. I was waiting for someone to say, if you'll just do these 50 things, and I, was gonna, I would have done them. I don't care how hard they were. I, I, I would have done them. I, all of a sudden, I realized I'd been looking to myself for salvation. And suddenly I realized, and listen to what he says, suddenly I realized I just have to look, but not to myself, to him. And then what Spurgeon says after he says, oh, I looked and I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. Everything changed. After Jesus said this about him coming from heaven and about the serpent in the wilderness, he then literally explodes everything we thought we ever knew about God in verse 16 probably the most quoted verse in all of the Bible. Here it is. Then Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. 26 words that change, well, everything. Brief enough to memorize in a moment brief enough, easy enough for a seven-year-old to memorize. Remember, John's gospel was written at a seven-year-old grammar level, yet solid enough to weather 2,000 years of storms and questions and controversies. If you don't know anything about the Bible, start here. If you know everything about the Bible, come back to here. It's that important. That's what this verse is God loved, God gave. Our job, believe. But it's such an interesting word, believe, that Jesus uses here in the Greek. Pisteuo. Pisteuo, it's not what we think of. When we think of believe, we're always thinking intellectually, right? But this word means so much more than that. Let me give you a really good example. I can see that you believe in the chair that you're sitting in. How do I know? Because you're sitting in it. You see, you could come in and you could stand beside that chair and you could say, this chair looks super sturdy. This chair looks like it's going to hold me up. I believe intellectually this chair is going to hold me up. That's not the word pisteuo. Pisteuo is, ah, I believe. I'm putting all my weight on it. I'm putting everything that I am on it all that I am on this chair. I believe in this chair. 
Jesus came and he told us something that had never been shared before. We've taken it for granted. But as you read the Gospel of John, you see Jesus was telling us God is our father. Now, that seems like, oh, well, we know that. You know, that's the whole Lord's Prayer, our father, right? No, that was a whole new concept. You see, the Jews, they wouldn't even speak God's name. It was too holy. They were afraid of being struck down. This God that is other, this God that is distant, this God that is vengeful, this God that is, you know, looking over every little thing. And so here they are trying to make their good outweigh their bad, working really hard to please this vengeful God. But what Jesus came and said was, I've come from heaven to tell you that God is a father that loves you. This God who created the universe isn't distant and uncaring. This God who created you and everything else isn't angry and out to condemn you for your rebellion against him. His is no performance-based acceptance. What Jesus was saying, God was more like Bill Tucker's dad. Bill Tucker was a teenager, and he wrote this story about his dad. He said his dad suffered a health crisis and consequently lost his job. And even after he gained his health, the family was pretty much devastated financially. But Mr. Tucker was an entrepreneurial type, and, and uh, he, he surprised everybody by stepping into something that no one expected. The, the cinema, the theater in their town was wanting to reupholster all of their seats. And Mr. Tucker bid on that project and won it. And it stunned his family because he had never stitched a seat ever. And he didn't have the industrial strength machine that it took to even do that. But he thought, you know, this is something that we can step into. This is a niche that we can begin to turn our fortunes around. And so he bought this machine. It was in another town about an hour away. And he, Bill said, my dad and I, we went to go pick up this industrial strength sewing machine that could do this and reupholster these chairs. And we loaded it in the back of the truck and got it all set. My dad, I was 16. I just turned 16, not long before. He said, you want to drive home? And I said, sure. And so they began to drive home. And on the way home, they were excited. His dad just kept saying, this is going to turn our fortunes around. This is our dream. They had actually, they had taken every bit of money that they had in the bank and even tried to dig coins out of the sofa and everywhere else to get this machine. And they had put everything in his whole, what was left of his fortune went into this machine. But he said, it's going to turn everything around. Well, let me just read you from Bill's words. He says, as we were driving along, we were excited. And I, like any 16-year-old driver, was probably not paying enough attention to my speed. And just as we were turning to get on the expressway, I will never, ever, ever forget watching that sewing machine, which was already top-heavy, began to tip. I slammed on the brakes, but it was too late. I saw it go over the side. I jumped out and ran back around the back of the truck, and as I rounded the corner, I saw our hope and our dream lying on its side in a million pieces 
And then I saw my dad just looking. All of his risk, all of his endeavor, all of his struggling, all of his dream, all of his hope to take care of his family was lying there shattered. You know what comes next, don't you? Stupid punk kid driving too fast, not paying attention, ruin the family by taking away our livelihood. But that's not what he said. He looked me right in the eyes and with tears in his eyes, he said, oh, Bill, I'm so sorry. And he walked over and he put his arms around me and said, son, this is going to be okay. What Jesus is saying is God is whispering the same to you. Those are his arms that you feel. That's his voice that you hear. Life at times falls to pieces. It just does. But Jesus is saying, we have a father and he comes and he says, I'm here. I'm with you. We'll walk through this together. It's going to be okay because I'm here. See, a lot of us grew up in homes where our dad might have been distant emotionally or maybe just wasn't there. Maybe you grew up in a home of divorce. Or maybe your dad just wasn't, you know, what you wish that a dad could be. But Jesus is saying, that's not who God is. God is not into performance. Some of you, it was such a performance-based acceptance at home. And you have been thinking that God is the same way. And he's put you on this treadmill and you're trying to perform for him and do good. And hopefully my good will outweigh my bad and I'll do good for my fellow man. And surely, surely, surely it'll be good enough for God. God is more like Dan Mazio's father. They called him Pop. He was a first-generation Italian-American. He was struggling with metastatic lung cancer, gone to his liver. And he wasn't afraid to die. His wife had already died, and his kids were grown. And he said, I'm not afraid to die. I'll just go to heaven and be with my sweet wife. But then Dan, his only son, he found out that his wife had gotten pregnant And he goes, oh, I'm going to be there for that. And so Pop endured all the chemo. And some days were so bad that Dan said when he called him, all he could get out was bad day, bad day. But he endured it all. And when it came time, those nine months passed as he just hung on and hung on and hung on. And he said, when his wife went into the went in to deliver, that a friend went and picked up Pop, who lived about 90 minutes away. It was a 90 minutes excruciating ride for him. They wheeled him into the maternity ward. His dad, Dan said, was so weak he couldn't even hold up the baby after she was born. But he did what he determined to do. As Dan held the little baby's face right in front of Pop, Pop leaned over and kissed her on the forehead, and he said, Sheila Marie, your grandpa loves you. He said within an hour, Pop had fallen asleep. Within days, he was gone, but he did what he set out to do. You know, as you're thinking about that, you, you, you would call that agape love. That's what when the word is used for love, God so loved, it's agape. 
what kind of love would endure nine months and resist death just to give one kiss? It's agape love. It's a love that is a semblance of God's, but it's just a tiny resemblance because God's love is so much deeper, bigger, stronger than that. His agape love for God so loved the world. It's just a taste of that extravagant, extraordinary love of God. Our finest love is like a preschool watercolor to God's Mona Lisa. Mark it down. God loves you with an unearthly love. You can't win it by being a winner. You can't lose it by being a loser. He just loves you. He's a father. You can resist it, but why would you? Listen to how Paul put it. I love Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. It says this, take in with all the followers of Christ the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. Well, Jesus is explaining what it feels like to be born again, what it feels like to experience God's love. How do you know if you've been born again? Two words, changed life. Every single time. You see, you can't work your way to God. You can't be good enough to get to God. You can't work your head off performance-based acceptance to get to God. That's impossible. But when you, when you, put everything that you are on Christ and what he did on the cross for you. When you receive God's gift, his love gift, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. When you do that, when you step into that, when you put all your weight on that, your life changes. Everything changes. If you claim to be a believer, but you haven't seen life change happen, you're not a believer. Because there's a new power on the inside. There's a life change that happens. Always, always results in a changed life. Go with me to the end of the book of John. Jesus is still hanging on the cross. He's just breathed his last. So his lifeless body is on the cross. And we see in John 19, starting with verse 38, let me just read, Nicodemus comes up again. Now, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, he was another rich ruler, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, requested of Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred litres weight. So, We see Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, these two rich rulers, older men, asking for the body of Jesus, which, wow, you have to be pretty bold to do that at this point. I mean, all the disciples have run away. Nobody else is around, and they come and they request it, and they take care of his body. They embalm it in the way that they have done on the outside. 
wrap it all up in these, the, these different spices and things so that it won't smell so bad. And then Joseph of Arimathea puts Jesus' body in his own tomb. That's the tomb where Jesus lay and where he rose from the dead. And you start to ask yourself, wait a minute, what, what, what's going on here? I want you to see it with me. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they're on the edge of the crowd as Jesus is being crucified. And there's a big crowd that's gathered. This was a big deal. And as they're there, all of a sudden above the crowd, they see lifted up above the crowd on that pole, on that cross, the broken, beaten body of Jesus. And all of a sudden for Nicodemus, it clicks. That's what he meant. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. There he is. I see it. Peter's run away. The other disciples are in hiding. Most of them have given up and abandoned Jesus. And there stands Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who had hoped, they had hoped he was for real, but they hadn't stepped in good. They were afraid what the other elites would think. But that dreadful Friday as they see that body of Jesus raised up, it clicks. Oh, this is what Jesus knew all along. This is what Jesus had expected. This was always going to be part of the story. It had to be. And Nicodemus recalls his Bible training, verses that he's memorized, going all the way back to the the book of Leviticus. It says, it is the blood that removes the sins because it is life. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And he had always been taught that that was something that God had woven into the fabric of the universe, that because the blood is life and sin is death, it takes blood to forgive sins, the shedding of blood. And then he remembers one of the passages that all the the Jewish boys had memorized when they were children, Isaiah, because they loved Isaiah. He prophesied that one day there would be a Messiah. They were all waiting for that Messiah to come and deliver Israel. But part of the difficulty of Isaiah in the midst of all the amazing things it says the Messiah is going to do, it starts talking about how the Messiah would suffer at the hands of men. And the, the Jewish people couldn't understand how could God's messenger or God himself as Messiah, how could he suffer? And why would God's Messiah ever suffer? This makes no sense. But as Nicodemus stood there watching Jesus hoisted on the cross, No doubt that prophecy came back to his mind. Let me just read it for you, Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. So while the rest of Jesus' followers fled, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea must have stood in awe as they saw before their very eyes the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture, all the things they had memorized. And they realized that Jesus 
was in fact the Son of God and that Jesus was sent from God to take upon himself the sins of the world and that you entered the kingdom of God not through good behavior, but through pisteuo, putting all that you are onto him, trusting him with everything that you are through faith in this one that God had sent on behalf of all humankind. And I think Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea must have in that moment decided we can't hide any longer. We can no longer be secret followers of this Jesus. And after they watched him bleed and die on that cross, they did the unthinkable. They went to Pilate and they asked for the body of Jesus and they put him in Joseph's own tomb. What had happened to Nicodemus? He had been born again. Tradition says he was later baptized by Peter and John. And that because his confession of the Lord Jesus was so bold, it led to him being deprived of his office, deprived of his position, deprived of his fortune, all his property, his possessions, and banished from Jerusalem by the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling council he had served so faithfully. He was reduced to living outside the city and his family left inside the city to abject poverty. And some centuries later, a man named Photius refers to an ancient document that records that Nicodemus was martyred in the first century for his devotion to Christ, how he was beaten to death by a mob. Had Nicodemus been born again? You bet your very soul he had. Everything changed for him. Everything. He put all that he was, all that he had, all that he ever hoped, he wrapped it all up and he put himself, he just trusted, he just believed in Jesus in that moment. Later in John, we're going to read this and we'll go into it deeper when we do, but I wanted to pull it ahead of time. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, Jesus is talking. And listen to what he says. It's in the Amplified Version because I like the Amplified on this because what it means, the Amplified Version takes the Greek and pulls it out so that we can get the whole meaning of it. It says this, Jesus talking. The sheep that are my own hear and are listening to my voice, and I know them and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never lose it or perish throughout the ages. To all eternity, they shall never by any means be destroyed, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater and mightier than all else, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, maybe while I've been speaking, there's something that has risen up inside of you that says, like Charles Spurgeon when he was a teenager, I see it. I get it. I've been trying so hard to earn my way. You see, people sometimes try to say, oh, the Bible's too narrow. Christianity's too narrow. I feel there are many ways to God. But if you look at all of those ways, Who are we depending on? Even every other religion, it's working. 
pleasing, trying to get to a certain place, trying to become a certain kind of person. And what the Bible says that even those good works, God is so holy that they're like filthy rags to him. So can you imagine? And it's so interesting when it uses the word filthy rags, it, it uses the, the word for men, menstruation rags, you know, and, and it's just like, it's like, but look all the good stuff I've done for you, God. It's, it's not enough. God says, believe. I see that there's nothing you could do to ever get to me. But God so loved you that he sent his son. He did what was necessary. He did it. That's why Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. Because it's not about us. It's not about what we can do. It's all about him. Have you come to that place where you said everything? Maybe you think you've been a Christian for a long time. My mom, she was a preacher's wife in a Baptist church. Well, my dad's wife, you know. But in a Baptist church, when she suddenly saw this, and was born again. Before that, she had been working like crazy to try to earn it. Can't earn it. It's a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that anyone, whoever, however good you are, however bad you are, anywhere in between, whoever believes in him will have eternal life eternal life. And it's not just a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. Changes everything. There's a new power on the inside. And you see what flows out of that works, flow out of that good works, good things. But you don't have the ability really to do it until then because it's spirit works. The only thing that Jesus accepts, the only thing that God accepts from us is spiritual things, not fleshly things. But he says, when you're born again, remember last week, I put my spirit in you. I give you a new spirit. And the things you do from then on, it's spiritual things. And there's a power in it. There's a joy in it. You notice I didn't say that he'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. That didn't happen to Nicodemus, just the opposite. But... He'll be there no matter what comes. He'll be there no matter how hard it gets in this prodigal broken planet of ours. He'll be there. He'll walk with you. And that's forever. You can't lose it because it didn't depend on you to get it. It depended on him. And he said, no one can snatch you out of my hands. No one ever. I want you just to close your eyes with me for a minute. This might be your moment to transfer your trust, to transfer your weight away from what you've been trusting in to get you to heaven and into what Jesus did on your behalf. If you're here and you've done that already, just say a prayer of thanksgiving. That's what we do. Why is it so exciting Sunday after Sunday here? Because that's what so many of us are doing. We're just so excited about the life change that's happened but maybe you're here this morning and you get it for the very first time. 
I get it. I get it. This is your time. It's not because there was some eloquent sermon preached. Far from it. It's because the Holy Spirit, the wind that's blowing where it wishes, remember last week, has blown into your life. And he's opened your eyes and he's opened your heart. And he's saying, I love you. For some of you, it's hard. You have so many preconceived ideas based off who your father was or what he did or didn't do. No, don't compare me to that. I am the father, that perfect father that loves you, not performance-based. I just love you. I have done what's necessary. Put all that you are on it. Put all your weight on it. And your life will never be the same. Do that right now. There's no magic words, no magic formula. Father, you are so good. Jesus, you are so amazing. I say, based on how you taught us to pray, come kingdom of God upon us. Be done, will of God over us. Don't let anyone in this room, anyone within the sound of my voice, leave this message without stepping in, without putting all their weight on you. And I thank you for the life change that's going to be palpable. I thank you for the life change that's coming. I thank you for the way that you're going to change so many things. Our marriages, conquer our addictions, Give us strength to do some of those things we've never been able to do in our own strength before. I claim that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have some people up here to pray for you, and let us do that. Maybe you want to ask some more questions. They can answer them for you, but they're just like you. But we've seen so many miracles happen. Let them pray for your marriage. Let them pray for your finances. Let them pray over your life, whatever it is, for that child that's strayed so far away, for an addiction that you're dealing with. We've heard it all, and that's okay. We love you, just like you are, and you're welcome here. Thank you, Community of Faith. You have a great afternoon, and we'll see you next weekend.